Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, we're beginning a study in the book of Micah, and uh, Micah, his name actually, it means, it's been shortened, but it means who is like God. And really that's, if you think about it, that's really the theme of the book of Micah. I don't know how many of you have ever read the book of Micah before or studied it, but that's pretty much the theme of the book. Now, it's kind of hard to outline Micah, but I took a stab at it uh, with a little help. But, uh, chapters 1 through 3, again, the theme is who is like God, and chapters 1 through 3 is who is like God proclaiming judgment against his people. And the first three chapters deal with God's judgment against his people. And then verses 4 through, or excuse me, chapters 4 through 5 is who is like God consoling his people. And, and there is no one like God who consoles like God. And then chapters 6 through 7, verse 13, is who is like God pleading with his people. And then finally, chapters 7, verse 14 through the end, uh, verse 20, who is like God pardoning his people. And it really culminates there with Micah 7, verse 18, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Man, there, there is no God like that. And so that the whole theme runs through the book of Micah and, of course, his name, who is like God. And so beginning here with chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there's a few Micahs mentioned in the Bible, and they're not all the same person. Um, this Micah, who wrote this book, he was from Moresheth, we're told. In fact, we get a lot of information in verse 1. He's from Moresheth. Now, Moresheth was a town on the Philistine border uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's from the southern kingdom, and it's near the town of Gath. So it's right on the Philistine border. Um, uh, Goliath was from Gath, you know, so you've, if you can understand the Philistines. So they're, they're right on the border. He's a border town pretty much, and it's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So that's where he was, whether he was born there or not, but that's where he was from, Moresheth. And we're told when he prophesied. It says that he prophesied during the reign of Jotham. Jotham was one of the kings of Judah, and Jotham was a good king. In fact, it's interesting, you know, uh, their lives are pretty much summed up in, in either the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles. And uh, whether they were a good king or a, long, a bad king, their lives are summed up in like one or two verses. That's very interesting. But uh, Jotham in Second Kings 15, verse 34, it says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. So Jotham was a good king. So, so Micah was alive, or you know, he was prophesying during the time of Jotham. But then there was another king that followed Jotham, and his name was Ahaz. And so he reigned, or excuse me, he prophesied during the reign of Ahaz. Now Ahaz was a wicked king. 
a very wicked king. And there's in 2 Kings 16, it talks about his life. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. That's child sacrifice, by the way. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So this was a, a, what a change from a good king to a very wicked king. But he was followed by Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a very good king. And listen to this, 2 Kings 18. It says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Which is fascinating to me, because if you recall when the children of Israel were in the wilderness... And, and they were grumbling and complaining, and God sent snakes, serpents, to bite them, and some of them were dying. And so, so Moses is pleading for the people, and God says, okay, set up, make a bronze serpent, and put it on a pole, and anyone that looks to that serpent will be saved, will, will, be, will, be, will be healed, and uh, they won't die. And, you know, of course, that's a picture of Jesus Christ who, you know, Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And, and, and for, for, the, for the people of Israel during that time, all they had to do was look at that serpent and believe that God, what God said, and they'd be healed. And, of course, it was to point them, it was a picture of Jesus Christ, and yet they had taken it and it became, a, it became an icon to them, basically, and they started worshiping it. And so uh, up from the time of Moses all the way to the time of Hezekiah, people in Israel burned incense to it, and they, they had his idol name for him. And so he destroyed that. It says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him there, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went. So it was during the reigns of these three kings that Micah was a prophet of the Lord. And so Micah served the Lord through the rule of good kings as well as wicked kings. You know, who is in office, because we, we look at who's in office, who's coming in, there's going to be a national election coming, coming up you know, relatively soon next year. Whoever is in office, whether they're good or whether they're a bad president, it, it, it does, shouldn't impact you and I as Christians as far as our ministry to the Lord. And, and Micah, he served through good kings and bad kings, and yet he still was faithful to the Lord. Well, because we're giving a time frame of Micah's ministry, we also know that Micah was a contemporary with some other prophets. Hosea was a prophet that was alive when Micah was around. Amos was another prophet, and Isaiah. In fact, some people call the book of Micah mini-Isaiah because it's very, very similar to the book of Isaiah, but it's like condensed. It's like the Reader's Digest condensed version of Isaiah. Uh, It's possible that Micah may have been a disciple of Isaiah. A younger, a younger man who was kind of like being tutored by Isaiah. And the book of Micah, it really, it appears to be basically a collection of prophecies that were gathered throughout his ministry, and then he put them into a book, very much like Isaiah was written as well. 
So, Morasheth, Micah's hometown of Morasheth. Like I said, it was only about 20 miles, uh, roughly 20 miles from uh, Jerusalem. It was also 20 miles from Tekoa. And Tekoa was the hometown of the prophet Amos. And so there are some similarities in passages in both the prophecies in Micah and the prophecies in Amos. And it's very likely that those guys, they knew each other. You know, they didn't live that far away from each other. Um, and then finally, uh, the book of Micah is considered, you know, I said we're going through a study on the minor prophets, and Micah is considered one of the minor prophets. Uh, Isaiah was considered one of the major prophets. And when we talk about minor or major prophets, we're basically referring to the volume of the book, how, how long or how big the book was. Um, it's not the scope of their ministry or their impact that their ministry had, or, or, or they themselves, you know, as far as being major and minor. Now, although uh, Morasheth was what we might call a hick town, because it really was, it was a small town on the, on the border there, Micah was not uninformed regarding what was happening in Jerusalem and what was happening up in the northern kingdom. He was very well informed about that. Not only that, but it's evident that Micah had a very big impact on his generation. Jeremiah, prophet who lived about 100 years after Micah, mentions Micah's prophecies to King Hezekiah and how King Hezekiah responded in obedience to Micah's prophecy. So Micah had a, a very big, huge impact there. You know, and what that speaks to me, basically, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter, you know, who's in office or what the political climate is. It doesn't matter if people consider you minor or insignificant. It doesn't matter if you grew up in Hicksville. God wants to use your life, just like he used Micah's. That should be irrelevant. God wants to take each one of our lives. And maybe tonight, today, you think, man, I'm so insignificant. You know, who am I? I don't know the Bible that well. God wants to use your life, just like he used Micah's. So I hope that encourages you. Now, Micah's prophecies were directed to Samaria, and Samaria was the northern capital, uh, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And his prophecies also were directed towards Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. So, verse 2. It says, Hear all you peoples. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. God is witnessing our lives. He was witnessing the lives of the, of the people of Israel. And it's from his vantage point in heaven. And you know, sometimes we tend to think that, you know, we talk about secret sins. You know, sins that people don't confess. Well, in reality, there are no secret sins. You know, we can hide sins from one, each, one another, you know. I can, I can hide something that I'm doing. You don't know about it. But in the eyes of the Lord, nothing's hidden from him. Listen to these passages. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus said in Luke 8.17, For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. So there's, there's nothing hidden from the Lord. And so the Lord there, he's seeing the sins of the people of Israel. And verse 3 says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. 
And so Micah, he sees the Lord in his vision coming down from heaven to take action against a sinful, rebellious people. Here he's coming down in judgment. Praise God that he came down to live as a man, to die. You know, he lived that perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he came and he was judged for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us and and died on the cross for us. Praise God. But here, this is before Jesus Christ died on the cross, before he came to earth. And so here Micah sees him taking action against a sinful and a rebellious place, uh, people, excuse me. The high places in the Bible, whenever you read, there's all kinds of places where it talks about the high places. Um, most often it's referred to, uh, it's referring to places of worship, where they worship idols on high places. Idolatry was rampant, especially throughout the northern kingdom at the time of, of Micah's prophecies. Now, symbolically, high places also refers to, high, uh, to human pride. You know, anything that's lifted up against the knowledge of God. And so the Lord is going to come down and he's going to tread on the high places of the earth. That word tread, it's used to indicate, you know, treading a wine press, stepping in and squishing the grapes, you know, with your feet. Um, And in the Bible, it's figuratively used to depict the Lord treading the wine press of his judgment. So basically what Micah is speaking about, God is coming down and he's going to judge his people. Now, you know, the Lord God wants to walk among and in his people. God wants a relationship. We, you know, we always talk about uh, Christianity is not a religion. It's not a belief system. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. So God wants a relationship with his people, and God wanted a relationship with his people Israel, but they were prideful, they were idolaters, and so he can't walk with them. Instead, he's going to tread upon them in judgment. And what will be the result of God treading on the high places of the earth? Look at verse 4. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. I mean, that's a vivid picture, you know. God stepping down in the mountains, just you know, they just, they just dissolve underneath his feet. Think about this. If the mountains and valleys melt before the Lord, what do you suppose is going to happen when, he's, when the wicked stand before him? In Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, it says all heaven and earth, everything just just disappears basically. And everyone, both great and small, is going to stand before him. What do you think that's going to be like? Verse 5, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So the whole reason he's coming down is because of his people that are in sin. Now, you know, the people could be complaining like, Lord, why are you coming down to judge us? I mean, we're not as bad as these nations around us that are so much worse. But you know what? They're God's people. And judgment always begins in the house of the Lord. Judgment always begins with us. And so he's coming down for the transgressions of the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? See, it's the transgression of God's people that... It's moving him to action. 
He's been observing their sin. You know, he's been sending prophet after prophet after prophet to urge them to repent. They're not repenting, so now he's coming down in judgment. Now, Samaria was the capital, as I mentioned earlier, was the capital of the northern kingdom. They had been given over to idolatry for a long time. And they had been unrepentant, and they were just, they had really gone far away from the Lord God of Israel. But Jerusalem, wait a minute, that's, that's the apple of God's eye, right? That's the holy city. That's the city, the Bible says, that God chose for himself. I mean, that's where all the tribes of Israel were supposed to go there. They were supposed to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the temple. That's where he was gonna, his presence was going to be known there on the earth, was there at Jerusalem in the temple. At Jerusalem was unceasing worship of God. You know, I'm reading through the book of Exodus right now as my own personal study, and uh, I'm going through all these different sacrifices and all the, the, the preparations for uh, uh, Aaron and his sons to become priests. And it's amazing. You read about all the animals that had to get killed. You know, all these, the oxen and the lambs. And it's just, there's just sacrifices in the morning, sacrifices in the evening. There's just a lot of sacrifices going on. And that's what Jerusalem was. Sacrifices were always taking place there, morning and evening sacrifices every day. The feasts of the Lord that were held throughout the year, they were held there in Jerusalem. Everybody would gather for the feasts of the Lord. They had memorials of past things that the Lord God had done. All those things, you know, the Bible says it's a picture and a shadow of your and my redemption through Jesus Christ. So Jerusalem's like, why why, why is God judging them? Why, why did they fall into sin? But you see, Satan managed to corrupt the beautiful city of the Lord God. He managed to corrupt the people there by enticing King Ahaz to idolatry. I mentioned to you earlier about what he did, but I'm going to read a little bit more. In Second Chronicles 28.3, says, He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. That was the worship of Molech. That was a bronze statue that they basically had in a fire that they would heat up and had its arms out. And they would take a a little baby, a little infant, and they would set it on this molten hot bronze idol that would just burn the baby alive. They were sacrificing their children. Ahaz, I mean, he's one of God's kings, one of the kings of Judah. Here he's doing this. Second Chronicles twenty eight twenty four says, So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in the pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. This is the worship of Ashtoreth and the worship of Baal that was taking place. He even took the brazen altar that was in the court of the temple you know, he went to Jerusalem, or to, excuse me, to, to Damascus one day, and he was looking over there, and he saw this altar that the pagans were worshiping to their false gods. And he goes, "Man, I like that. We got to do that back in Jerusalem." And so he had the priests there make an altar that was a copy of this this heathen idol altar, and they replaced the brazen altar in the courtyard of the temple, and they put this false this idol, this false god, in there, and they started offering sacrifices on that, burnt offerings on that. You know, Jerusalem, during the time of Ahaz, was a picture, I think, of believers who have divided hearts. 
Because, you know, Jerusalem, it was, it was the city of God. It was where he was dwelling. And just as I read earlier, Jesus Christ wants to dwell with his people. He, when, you, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he, he comes and dwells in your heart. But sometimes Christians, they have divided hearts and they start worshiping other things, worshiping idolatry, or they have sins that, they're not, that they won't confess or anything. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for you are the temple of the living God. You know, we were created to worship God alone. Man has this inbred thing. It's just this thing in them that they have to worship something. And we were created to worship God, but oftentimes people don't worship God. They worship either themselves or they worship other things as God. And you and I, man, we were bought... At a price, the Bible says. What was the price? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. Very costly sacrifice. And as a result of that, the Bible says, man, our lives are not our own, for we were bought with a price. We are also to love the Lord God with all our soul, excuse me, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. The Bible says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve both of them. We're not to have divided hearts. And, and you know, but that's what Jerusalem was a picture of that. You know, this was really brought home to me this week. Um, this week, it was, it's been a hard week for me in, in one respect that I'll just share with you. Um, a Christian brother of mine, a guy that, I, that I've known for quite a while, ministered alongside him, a pastor. His secret sins were exposed this week. And uh, so myself and two other pastors... Um, two other Calvary Chapel pastors, we met with the, with the board of elders of this pastor's church, and we had to confront this guy over his sexual sin. He had committed sexual immorality with another married woman. And uh, we, we, were there. we were there just as advisors. It was the board's decision of that church, but basically they told him, man, he has to resign, and we were totally in agreement. You have to resign. You, you can't minister to people now. You, you've, you've disqualified yourself from ministry. And uh, I tell you, it was the hardest meeting I've ever been in. First of all, you know, it's just, you're just crushed. It's like, man, you're my brother, you're my friend, and, and this time you've been living a lie. Not only that, but his wife was there. And it was just, it was, it was, a, it was a heartbreaking, it was a heartbreaking meeting. I, it's one of these things you, you, you go, you know what, I, I don't even want to be here. I hate this. I hate when the enemy does that to pastors or anybody. But, you know, having hated being there, man, I'm thankful in one sense that I was there. I'm thankful that I witnessed it because, you know what was going through my mind? It's the picture of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember those guys in the New Testament, the book of Acts? There were Christians that basically they were lying. They, 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 they were pretending like they were giving everything to the Lord when they were really, they weren't. And, and Peter called them on it. Man, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And they both died on the spot in front of Peter. Now you look at that and you go, wow. So you guys better tithe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you think of that and go, man, that seems so harsh, doesn't it? I mean, okay, yeah, okay, they, they held back something. They, they lied, but man, they, they struck them. God struck them down. Why so severe? Well, you know what? It does seem harsh, and it does seem severe, but you know what happened after that happened? It says, great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. That's what I was thinking about sitting in that meeting, going, man, Lord God, I don't ever want to be in that position where I have to, where I've, it's like I've lost the trust of my wife, my family, 
I've lost my ministry. I'm just humiliated because all these things are coming out that that's a secret sin that wasn't secret. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. You know what? I, and I don't envy, I wouldn't ask that upon anybody, but I, wouldn't, I mean, it, it would have been great if you guys had been there just to listen, not for gossip's sake, but for you guys to realize, man, how serious sin is and the consequences of sin. And so it's been really brought home to me here. Somebody who was, you know, basically, his heart was divided. Well, that's what Jerusalem's like. God's looking at them. They're his people, and yet here they're sacrificing to idols, and they're not repenting of it. Well, he turns his attention here to Samaria, the northern kingdom, verse 6. says, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley. I will uncover her foundations all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. You know, the northern kingdom was the first to fall into idolatry and to remain unrepentant in there, and so they're the first to be judged. They're the first to experience God's judgment. Now, it's interesting, the Lord's speaking about Jerusalem, and now he's saying what he's going to do to Samaria, the northern kingdom. And the whole purpose, not the whole purpose, but part of the purpose, God wanted the southern kingdom to see the, the consequences of sin so that they would turn and that they would repent, so that they wouldn't suffer the same thing. And, and uh, so sometimes you see things happen to other pastors or other spiritual leaders, and it's really it's a reminder to you. It's, it's, that, that meeting brought the fear of God in me. Lord God, I don't ever want to be in that place. Please keep my heart pure. Well, the southern kingdom was supposed to see this, and it was meant to warn them to repent from their idolatry. Now, this destruction of Samaria that's prophesied here in verse 6 and 7, it was partly fulfilled in 722 B.C. That's when the Assyrians captured Samaria, and they took the northern tribes into captivity. That's described in 2 Kings 18. But the city of Samaria itself, you know, they, they, they basically took the Jews out of, Assyria, or out of, out of Samaria, and they, they brought them to Assyria, and then they brought pagans in and they had them basically occupy the land so the the city of samaria itself wasn't destroyed as prophesied at that time but later on its judgment was completed when a guy by the name of john hyrcanus who was a nephew of judas maccabees in 114 bc he attacked samaria and listen to what it says this is josephus the historian he's talking about what he did he says he besieged it a year took it, and not content with this only, he utterly destroyed it, making brooks to run through it, and by digging it up so that it fell into the holes and caverns in so much that there were no signs nor traces of the city left. So that, that, that was ultimately fulfilled there when, uh, when John Hyrcanus destroyed the city of Samaria. Now, the, the city of Samaria actually was on a hill. And it, if you go back in the Bible, it was purchased... Uh, by one of the northern kingdom's most wicked kings, probably even more wicked than, than Ahaz we were reading about here. His name was Omri. And he purchased it from a guy by the name of Shemer for two talents of silver. And he built a city on the side of the hill and named it Samaria after the owner, Shemer. Um, and the hill apparently had good exposure to the sun. It probably, we don't know, but it probably had been a vineyard prior to Omri purchasing it and building a city on it. 
But now because of God's judgment, that hill that used to have a city on it, it's going to be reduced to what it once was before, a good place to plant grapes. And that literally happened. Verse 8, Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah, it has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. You know what's fascinating about this here? Micah was a prophet of the Lord, was prophesying this judgment, but you know what? He also had a heart of the Lord. You know, although he prophesied God's judgment against the wicked, he didn't rejoice over their fall. Instead, he was mourning over their destruction to the point of stripping off his clothes and weeping and wailing himself, you know, just just in an utter mourning over what was going on over the sin of the people. You know, sometimes we can get really focused, and I know some people are really into prophecy. They're prophecy students and everything, and I think it's good to study prophecy. I have nothing against it. I I like prophecy. But let me encourage you, don't let your intellectual study of prophecy just simply be an intellectual pursuit. As you study, ask God to align your heart with his heart, because that's the whole purpose behind it. God's heart, you know, his heart breaks. The Bible says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We talk about ISIS, you know, and then we talk about Damascus. You know, someday that Damascus, there's a prophecy that Damascus as a city is no longer going to exist at some point. It's going to be wiped out. And it, very possibly that could be a nuclear weapon. I mean, it's prophesied in the Bible. We go, yeah, those Assyrians are going to get wiped out. But you know what? That should really break our hearts. Because these are people who Jesus died for. Jesus paid the price for their sins just like our sins. And our hearts should weep over that. And Micah, what a beautiful picture. He had the heart of the Lord. He's weeping over the sins of the people. It says here, For it has come to Judah, it has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Now, the captivity of the northern tribes of the invasion, excuse me, the captivity of the northern tribes and the invasion of Judah, it's described here. I want to read it to you in 2 Kings 18, verse 9. It says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, in the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Halah, and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. And in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And so, they basically came all the way up to Jerusalem, and then, and then they actually tried to besiege Jerusalem. In verse 10 here, look at this. It says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth Arphra, roll yourself in the dust. Now Gath, Gath and Beth Arphra were both Philistine cities. And Micah here is, is echoing something David composed uh, back when Saul and Jonathan were killed in, on the battlefield. It's in 2 Samuel 1, verse 20. You know, Saul was the first king of Israel, and he, he actually fell on his sword. He actually was, he basically, I think he committed suicide, basically, in, in the face of the Philistines that were coming to attack him. But Jonathan died in the battle. And, 
you know, rather than, and Saul at this point hated David and he was trying to kill David. And, and uh, you know, rather than being rejoicing over the death of his enemy, David's heart broke that Saul ended this way. And, and of course, he had a, a good relationship with Jonathan and he, he was weeping about it. But he says here in, in 2 Samuel one twenty, it's talking about the death of Saul and Jonathan. He says, tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. The reason why David didn't want the enemies, the Philistines of, of, of God's people, reveling over the fall of Saul and Jonathan. He didn't want them rejoicing over it. And you know, when a pastor, or basically any Christian person who professes to be a Christian, falls under God's chastisement, man, the world rejoices. You know, it's like, they're, they're like, look at that, that hypocrite. Look at that. Yeah, I told you, you know, of course, Christianity's fake. Because look at these guys, you know, and it brings shame on the name of the Lord. And whatever testimony these people had, whatever good they did, it's been negated by all that sin. It's like one, one thing like that just wipes out every, every good thing that they did. And so David's like, don't, don't, you know, proclaim it not in Gath. I don't want the enemies to know about this because they're going to rejoice over it. That's the same thing Micah is saying here. Verse 11. Pass by a naked shame, you inhabitant of Shaphir. The inhabitant of Zaanan does not go out. Beth Ezel mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitant of Meroth pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Now these, these are names of towns that were all throughout Judah, and uh, these are probably some of the ones that were captured by Sennacherib, king of Assyria at that time. Verse 13, O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Now Lachish, according to the historians, was one of the most fortified cities of Judah. It was, a, it was like a stronghold city. Evidently, it was one of the first cities of Judah to adopt the idolatry of the northern kingdom. They were the first ones to adopt it, evidently, and uh, so she gets special mention here. It's not in a good way. There's, it's not a good mention here, and it's probably because she influenced all the other cities around her, the lesser cities, to join in the sins of the northern kingdom, that idolatry. You know, God, there's this biblical principle throughout the Bible. God holds people of influence to a stricter judgment, especially when they lead others astray. You know, and, and that's what happens. And, and the Bible, God, is, God doesn't play around with those things. That's why the Bible says, let, let not many of you become teachers, because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. And although Lachish was the most fortified of Judah's cities, Evidently, Sennacherib, he personally besieged that city and he made it his base of operations during his campaign when he tried to invade Jerusalem. So this most fortified city, because they were in sin, God allowed them to be, you know, they thought they were, you know, know, they couldn't be uh, conquered because they were a fortified city. But Sennacherib's like, man, I, I want that city. And he destroyed that. He besieged it. He made that his headquarters. Verse 14, therefore you shall give presents to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Axib shall be a lie to the kings of uh, Israel. Apparently, 
the uh, when the city of Lakish was besieged, they would try to send help to the surrounding cities. You know, they'd send messengers maybe out uh, trying to have people come to their defense. But the thing is, God was judging them, and there was no way they could be, they could get any help. And so God prevented that from happening, so that they could they could incur their judgment. And so basically, I think that's what this is talking about. The house of Achab shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Verse fifteen. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Mereshah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. You know, for me as a pastor going through studying this, this was a hard chapter because I'm like, where are these cities? And, you know, and so I'm trying to look up these cities on maps, trying to understand about it. Um, and I came across this, which for you and I as English readers, it doesn't make any sense to us. We're just reading these cities and stuff and go, okay, I don't know, understand what that's talking about. But evidently, Verses 10 through 15, Micah uses paranomasias. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, but he uses puns. These are Hebrew puns that Micah is using. It's, there's plays on words here, Hebrew words that sound similar in Hebrew, but they have different meanings. Now, the verse 1 in verse 10 and verse 14, we might be able to recognize, but there's one in verse 11, verse 13, and verse 15 that we probably, you know, unless you knew Hebrew, you wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to you. Verse 10, it says, In Beth Arfra, roll yourself in the dust. Well, Arfra is the city, and he says, Roll yourself in the, and the, and the Hebrew word is afar, dust. So Afra, Arfra, and Afar, it's, 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 again, if you were a Hebrew person, you go, ah, I get it. <laughs> we don't get it. <laughs> Verse 11, I'm sorry. The inhabitant of Zeanin does not go out. Now, Zeanin, the city, and does not go out, the word is Yasa. And I, again, I look at it and I go, it doesn't, it doesn't even seem like it rhymes, you know. But evidently in Hebrew, they sound very similar. Verse 13, O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. Lachish, the city, and the swift steeds, the word is rekish, or resik. And apparently, again, they sound similar in Hebrew. Verse 14, the houses of Aksib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Aksib, the city, and shall be a, and then the word here in Hebrew is aksab, a lie. So, uh, you know, for you and I, Oh, and then one more, uh, verse 15. Marsha, the city, and Yaresh, the hair, the air. Again, <laughs> you're like, okay, this guy's just rambling. Um, for you and I, again, I read this and it's like, wow, okay, that's interesting. But if you're a Hebrew reader and you're reading this stuff, it's going gonna, it's gonna to remind you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stick in your brain. You're like, oh, wow, I remember that. You know, it's almost like learning a nursery rhyme or something. You remember those things. And so Micah uses these to draw attention to these prophecies. Isaiah did the very same thing. And so for you and I, we kind of miss it. But for the Hebrews, it, it's like, oh, wow, I'll remember this now. Verse 16, make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. Now he says, basically shaving your head, making your head bald, that was a symbol of mourning for the dead in those days. And uh, they'd be mourning the captivity of their children. This is the prophecy that Micah is saying. Now, he also mentions eagles here. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle. And, you know, eagles molt. And when they molt, their feathers come off, and uh, they look pretty gross. I mean, have you seen a, a bird that's lost its feathers? They look, they look weak. They look sick. They look like they're, you know, they're, there's nothing to them. Um, and so it's interesting to me that the Lord God would mention the eagles here because I think it's just 
a hint of uh, just a picture of pointing to God's mercy, even in judgment. Because, you know, when an eagle molts, they look sick and weakly, but it's only temporary. Eventually they grow their new feathers, and they're beautiful again. And I think it's a picture of what God is trying to tell his people. Yeah, you're going to go through a time, it's going to be ugly. You're going to be weak. You're going to be, you're going to be broken. You're going to be humiliated. But I haven't given up on you. I, I'm not here. To, God doesn't destroy his people. God allows them to suffer chastisement, but it's only for their good. And it reminds me of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. And listen to this, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Man. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so I think there's just a hint here of God telling the the people of Israel, yeah, I'm punishing you. You're going to go into Assyria, but I haven't completely given up on you. I still love you. And so, yeah, you know, to undergo, to endure, to, to, to submit under the discipline of the Lord. And, you know, when the Lord God submit or disciplines you and I, we, we, the first thing we want to do is get out from underneath it, right? Oh, I hate this. But God sometimes uses those things to change us. And, and for, for anyone who's caught in a sin, it's like, it's like, okay, you know what? Just completely repent of your sins. Confess it all. Become broken and allow the Lord to rebuild you. And that's what needs to happen. Hebrews twelve eleven says, Now no chastening uh, seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. And I would shout out, yeah, <laughs> I know that's it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, chastening. And the Lord, you know, the Bible says, if God chastens us, you know, we're in sin and God, God allows us to suffer some consequences for our sins. He's chastening us. It says, if you're chastened, it's because he loves you. And, and it's not to destroy you. It's because he wants to change you. He wants to, he wants to create the peaceable fruit of righteousness in you. But that, you have to yield to it. You have to yield to God's discipline. And so verse 12 of Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And so for you and I as Christians, you know, making straight paths for our feet, strengthening our hands which hang down, to me that's just a picture of getting into the Word of God, allowing the Lord God to, to, to correct you, allowing, you know, responding in obedience. You read something and you go, you know what, my life doesn't measure up with this. Allow the Lord God to, allow the Spirit to speak to you and go, okay, and then step in obedience. And, and as you do that, you're starting to make your paths straight so that you don't stray into those things. The problem is, though, you know, we, we get into these situations where we think nobody knows and it's just, it's just a secret sin. I can just deal with it. Well, no. Eventually, everything that's secret is going to be revealed. 
And so, you know, here uh, I see just a beautiful picture here of the children of Israel. It's not a beautiful picture, I guess. That's the wrong word to say because for them, they're, they're suffering. They're going to Assyria. But God hadn't dis- dis- given up on them. He loves them. And, and, you know, for you and I, the Lord God loves each of us. I, I pray for this friend of mine because I-, I think he's not quite at the point where he's completely, completely broken at this point. And it's hard. I'm sure it's hard to be where he's at. Um, but I pray for him. I pray that, you know, he'll get to the point where he's completely humbled and broken before the Lord. And then that, that, at that point, the Lord can take his life and start rebuilding it and start renewing him. And, and you know, I don't know if he'll ever be in ministry again. I, I can't say. But uh, that's between him and the Lord, you know. But, uh, I, you know, he's got a marriage to work on. He's got his family to work on. You know, and, and he just needs to walk with the Lord. And so for me, this all was, it was just like a, wow, it's really, it's amazing that I'm here reading this and then I'm walking it in someone else's life here. You know, as always, there's two ways to learn. It's, it's, you can either learn by watching someone else make mistakes and learn from them, or you can walk through the mistakes yourself and learn that way. I'd much rather see somebody else <laughs> make a mistake and learn it and go, okay, I'm not going to do that, you know, and start walking um, you know, have it change my life, but <clears throat> kind of a heavy chapter deals with judgment. Again, there's a hint of mercy there at the end, which I, I love because otherwise it would have been you guys would have went home like, oh man, that was a that was a downer of a message. And you know, there's another chapter, a couple chapters dealing with judgment, but I love the book of Micah because in it there's God pleading with His people. God consoling his people, and it's just like he deals with you and I. You know, he pleads with you and I. He sends reminders of you and I. He sent reminders, the prophets, to the children of Israel all the time. Repent of your sins. You know, turn back to me over and over and over again. And then finally, he pardons. And what a, what a, beautiful, what a beautiful finish to the book of Micah. And I'm just going to read it one more time because... I just, I love this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. Praise God. You know, we have a God that loves us, and he only wants our best. And so if we would just submit under the Lord and allow him to lead our lives, our lives would be so much more more enjoyable. We'd have that joy of the Lord as we submit to him. So I just want to encourage you. Uh, this was my Christmas message. <laughs> Merry Christmas. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, if you come on, uh, on uh, Thursday evening uh, for the uh, Christmas Eve service, we're going to be going through scripture. So it'll be, a, it'll be a good, it'll be a good, it'll be short too. It'll be brief, but it'll be a good, good message there. It'll be a Christmas message. I won't even be preaching it. The Holy Spirit will, so we'll just let him preach it. But uh, why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, I do come before you this morning. Lord, I just thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes your word, is it's hard to hear because, Lord, we see ourselves in some of these things, Lord. Lord, sometimes we see that our hearts are divided. Lord, that we're not... You're not always on the throne, Lord. Sometimes we've allowed other things to get in between our relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that uh, this reminder to us this morning, Lord, that we would remember, Lord God, that, uh, Father, that we reap what we sow. And, Lord, I pray that we would just uh, 
turn away from our sin. Lord, that we would repent and follow you. Lord God, I pray that, uh, Lord, we would truly fear you, not as a God who wants to destroy us, but as a, as a holy and a righteous God, and that, that, Lord, that would be what drives us uh, to, to worship you and to love you, Lord God. And Lord, I thank you that, Lord, you did send your son, Lord, to pay the price for our sin, Lord, that we couldn't, we couldn't pay the price. And you did for us, Lord, and so I thank you for that. Thank you for dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. And Lord, this Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of your son, Lord, we're just we're celebrating that time that you came down to live among us, to be a man, to be that servant, that suffering servant for us. So we thank you for that reminder. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people this week. Lord, as they gather with friends and relatives, I pray, Lord, that Lord, it would be a time of joy. And I know for some, it's, holidays are not always a joyful time because of reminders of past pain or loneliness. Lord, I, I just pray that if anybody here is, is, just has lost their joy or is going through a, just a painful time right now or a lonely time, Father, I pray that even now your Holy Spirit would minister to them. Lord, that they might just feel the presence, your presence in their lives and experience just a closeness with you, Lord God, because you've said that you'll never leave us nor forsake us, and we rejoice in that, and thank you, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing. I ask your blessing upon your people now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for coming this morning. Lord bless you guys, and I hope you have a Merry Christmas if I don't see you before then.